one-anothering. We're looking at all the one-anothers or some of the one-anothers that are in Scripture. There's about 60 of them. And with those 60, if we were to kind of categorize them, there's probably 27 individual different meanings between all of those one-anothers or points to the one-anothers. And we're just taking one at a time. We're not going to get through all 27 but we are going to look at one today. Um, when I was uh, middle school, when I was middle school, I had um, a man in my life, his name was Bruce, and Bruce um, was a middle school youth worker. And I remember Bruce would continually, uh, when I would come in to our youth time, whether it was uh, on a Sunday or a Wednesday, he would, he would kind of poke and prod me and, and challenge me to take my, my relationship with Jesus seriously. And I kind of, you know, give him the, the, um, the, the attitude that normally comes with that age and kind of would uh, blow him off from time to time. Well, he kept this up. He kept this up. He kept saying this. He would come up in different, different ways. And uh, there was one, one of our meetings where I remember very vividly he was, he was poking again as he was teaching. And uh, the Holy Spirit just, boom, just, if there was any time in my life there was an audible voice from God in my head, it was that moment. And... Um, he kept poking and prodding and provoking me, and uh, it changed my life. And then I also had, when I was a little bit older than that, I worked in a metals company. And as I was there, I was working, and I had a boss. His name was Jim. Mr. Corso was um, a, a tough guy to work for. He is maybe the stereotypical kind of boss that, that you know, is a boss. And he would, he would cuss at me and um, order me around, Douglas, do this, Douglas, do that, all this kind of different stuff. And um, finally, I think one day he must have recognized that it was troubling me. And so he says, Douglas, you just need to know, if I'm not cussing at you, it means I don't care. And, and he goes, my goal here is to, to step on your shoes without ruining your shine. That's my goal here. And, um, I, you know, he kept poking and prodding at me, and he changed my life. He helped instill a work ethic in me. I'm thankful for that that guy. I had a friend named Mark in high school. He's a buddy of mine. And, and uh, we were in youth group together and he kept poking me to step up and um, act like a leader and to be a leader in the group. And I was like, no, thanks. That's not for me. That's for other people that are um, more spiritual than me and whatnot. And so he kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. And, um, and finally I stepped in and um, was serving on the youth team. And because of his, his poking and prodding, it really it, it changed my life. It kind of set the course of where I'm at. Um, pastor Bob was my youth pastor. He taught me to love the Bible um, because I saw him preach it all the time, but then he started to poke at me. He started to see something in me that I certainly didn't see in myself, and he started to challenge me to consider ministry. Consider ministry. Go towards ministry. He kept poking me, and it was one of those things, nope, 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 not going to do that, and then I think he got me over-emotional at one of our winter retreats, and um, finally it was like, okay, Lord, um, I'll pursue this. And uh, boom, it changed my life because of his proking, pro, probing and, and, and poking in, in my life. And then I could, I could go on. The only one I'll mention here is my wife, and I'll keep it short just because I have to sleep in our house. But she's this way too <laughs> uh, in my life. Um, the one, one of the beautiful things she does for me is she um, constantly is exhorting me and encouraging me to, to pray before I think and pray before I act about certain things. And um, as I listen to her counsel in that way, it, it really does change the outlook of my day and the outlook of my life. So it's nice that we have these kind of people. I think you might have some of those too. And as we look to the one another, as we look to the one today, as you can see, it's provoke one another. Provoke one another. And with this, we're really talking about influence. That's really what we're talking about is influence. Reality is every single one of you. So if you're sitting in here or in there, you have influence. 
in someone's life. If you're alive, you have influence because you have people. The real question is whether or not you're influencing them in an intentional way or an unintentional way. Chances are if it's influencing them in an unintentional way, it's probably not poking and prodding them in the, the, the healthiest of directions. And so as we look here at this, this particular verse in, in Hebrews, we get to see the how. How do we do this? How do we provoke one another to love and good deeds? What does that actually look like? The context of Hebrews, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, but the context here is this is a book that's written to mostly Jewish Christians. Uh, these Christians, um, they, they understand a little bit about their faith, um, they're intellectually convinced, but they're not really functioning very well in their faith. And, and, and so you see the writer of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who that is, a lot of people think it's Paul, but we're not sure. But the writer of Hebrews, he has kind of this one overarching theme, and that's the supremacy of Jesus, the, the, the grandness of Christ. Jesus is, is greater than any Old Testament prophet or Old Testament patriarch. He's greater than any created thing, any of the high priests, any of the temple rituals that they have. Jesus is greater than these things. Um, but the problem was that these Christians, these Jewish Christians, they were struggling to follow Jesus. They had all kinds of issues that made it difficult for them. They had their, their background. They had their Jewish background. So they wanted to constantly slip into legalism and think that they could kind of earn their way to God's favor by the different things that they did. They had the culture that was pushing against them. And so for, for many of these Jewish Christians, for years, they just, they began to stagnate in their faith. They kind of, they kind of sat and it was, it was a problem. And so the writer of Hebrews kind of comes along with this, with this powerful verse to help move them forward. And the verse is this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. If you want to know just basically the point today, um, the point is that we are to provoke one another on purpose. We're, so, we're, we're called as followers of Christ to be in each other's lives in a very intentional and purposeful way. Uh, the, the word here for stir up is the word paroxymos, and, and basically it means a number of different things. And what I found really interesting in, in getting ready for today was that uh, normally the, 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 the standard process when, when I come to preach is I'll, I'll look at some of the original languages, I'll, and then I'll look at um, some of my favorite English translations, normally four or five or six of them. And what happened this time that's never happened before for me in preparation is every, all six of the different translations that I looked at all translated proximos in a different, with a different word. And so we look at, uh, I normally preach from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and in this version it's stir up, stir up. But if you go to the NIV, which a lot of you use, it's the word, and it makes me think of uh, on a horse, you know, with, with spurs. You know, you're, you're trying with spurs to create um, movement in, in, in something. The NASB is the word stimulate. It uses the word stimulate, which that kind of puts this emphasis on trying to arouse interest in someone. The TEV uses the word help, kind of like help someone to do something. The, the, the New Living Translation uses the word motivate to produce interest in something. And then the King James version. King James, and this is kind of the word that I chose because I had to choose one of these six to kind of build the sermon around, was the King James word because it stands out to me, and I think it's a little bit more memorable than the other ones, provoke. The word provoke. That word, when I think and hear it, I just think of someone constantly like, you know, 
putting a finger in your ribs or in your chest saying, you know, hey, 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 just like those people that I mentioned earlier. So these, these whether, whatever translation you have, they all kind of have this same common denominator. They, they all really are, are, are pointing to, to one to make someone, and this is kind of where we're going, we are to stir up one another to make one another uncomfortable with spiritual passivity. Bye-bye. <laughs> we're supposed to make each other uncomfortable with spiritual passivity. That's what was going on in the, in the church. There was this, this, this passivity that was taking place. And, and spiritual passivity, when I, when I think about it, it kind of makes me think of the, the, the way that water works. Basically, you know, if you take water and you pour it out over something, it is going to flow downhill until it gets to its lowest point. And when it gets to its lowest point, because that's just kind of what water does, it just finds the lowest point. And when it gets to that lowest point, what does it do? It, it settles there. And one of two things normally takes place once it settles there. There's no movement in it. It either gets gross and algae and germs and stagnates, or it evaporates and goes away completely. And so the writer of Hebrews, in, as, he, as he's writing here, he's like, basically, spiritual passivity is, 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 is a terrible thing. And it's not what we're called to in this faith journey that, that Jesus has us on. And so we can go through this in, in, in a lot of different ways, and we can kind of find the things that are most just convenient for us, kind of settle, um, that are most controllable, most stable, most predictable, most safe, most comfortable, and we just kind of can just sit in there. And that's not terrible, because life, in order to be productive, we need to have some form of a regularity to it, some form of a, a schedule, so that the responsibilities aren't left undone. These predictable patterns aren't terrible, Yet, with that, stability and predictability can cost us something. And the cost there is that it can lead us towards just sameness. It can lead us towards blindness, towards boredom, towards passivity. Or the scriptures use another word in a number of places, towards lukewarmness. So this can happen in our personal lives, but it certainly can happen in our faith as well. And it can happen in the church too. We can kind of become spiritually passive we can gravitate towards those things that are most comfortable we can gravitate towards uh, a former style of worship or an order of service like this is how the service is supposed to go we're supposed to you know open up at this point in time this many hymns this many songs this is when the bible reading is this was the and we can get comfortable in some of those things and with that can become, well, some issues. We can get comfortable with the seat. Have you ever had someone come and sit in your seat? A visitor comes and they sit in your spot. Heaven forbid we can get comfortable in those spots. I've actually noticed some of you are sitting in different seats today, so I think maybe you saw my notes before the sermon. Uh, we can get comfortable with these things. We can kind of settle with these things. We can get comfortable with how we talk about spiritual things with certain people or not with certain people. We can get passive or comfortable in the ways in which we, we serve. And the danger with this is that when we get comfortable in our faith, whether it's individually or as a church, it can lead to, to stagnant or dead worship. It can lead to stagnant, um, stagnant um, worship, to an, a stagnant small groups or growth groups. If, it can lead to a church that's just kind of um, exclusive. It's just all about us rather than how we can get outside of ourselves. It can lead to 
lifeless devotions. Um, it can lead to just kind of going through the motions. But when we think about this, think about Jesus, right? What was Jesus great at? What did he do? When you read scripture, this is what he did so often. He was constantly poking. He was constantly in a place where he's provoking. He's trying to engage people in a number of different ways. He's trying to agitate them. He's trying to challenge them to think, to think about God, truly think about God, to think about truth, to think about reality, to think about sin, to think about grace, to think about service. Jesus was an intentional provoker. And the writer of Hebrews is calling every single one of us who says Jesus is our Savior to be the same way, to provoke, to motivate, to stimulate. And it uses that word, the word consider, kataneo, this word to notice, to consider, to discover, to, to perceive. Um, what this basically, well, an example of this, I'll just give you, most all of you know, we're, we're in uh, the process of building a church facility we're not quite there yet, but for more than two years, there's been a ton of cataneo that's gone into that, a ton of consideration going into that, meaning that the building team is, has been meeting regularly with, with uh, the architect and with the civil engineers and with the town and with experts on different building styles and codes, and they've gone to all the other local churches in our area and they've considered how those churches are structured and they've come to you and we've done polls and we've asked you what things we need to consider as we put this together because if we don't properly consider all of these things before we start moving on them then a couple things will happen we'll either fall way behind schedule if we get things out of order or it'll it'll uh, cost us a lot more money so we have to kind of go through it in a very in a very considerate fashion and that's the same thing that's being said here in Hebrews. We have to take that kind of thought and consideration. It's not saying consider like, will I choose to or will I not choose to? It's actually an imperative command. It's not an option to consider stirring one another up. It's a command to stir one another up. We're called to do this, especially and intentionally within our relationship, which means this. It means that we give thought and we give time we give energy to one another in ways in which we can encourage each other, poke each other, stimulate and motivate one another to become more like Jesus, to, to live more like Jesus, to, to love more like Jesus. And so we're, we're called to consider things like this. We're called to, do we, are we going to be ones that respond more to spiritual thinking or to unspiritual thinking? To, to encourage people in, in peace in unity or in strife? Are we going to encourage and poke people in the, the direction of being content with all that they have and who they are or to be envious? Are we going to poke and, and stir one another towards a place of humility or a place of pride? A place of forgiveness or a place of bitterness or resentment? Are we going to poke one another to be thankful in all times about all these things in all seasons? Or are we going to poke and encourage one another in our complaining? Are we going to poke and encourage one another in our service? Or are we going to challenge each other to be selfless? What about faith? Encourage one another in our faith? Challenge one another in our faith? Or do we promote fear and doubt within one another? And so those are things that we have to think about. But the beautiful thing about God's word is that it doesn't just say provoke people because we would know what would happen if that was the case. 
we would provoke people in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong directions. And I've got people like that in my life, especially when I was a youth pastor, I remember there was someone that used this verse as his personal mission statement, but he seemed to forget the second half of the verse. He just found it as his mission to provoke me. And his definition of provoking me personally was to bring um, annoyance, to bring discontentment, discouragement, and divisiveness. I remember I get these long emails. I couldn't feel like I did, ever did anything right, or nor did anybody else in our church ever do anything right. So he would, he would poke and, and prod, and thankfully at, at some point the, the elders um, put a stop to it. Thank you, elders, for that. Um, but we're called, there's a certain way we're to provoke certain things. And this is, this is the first way, and this is where we're going to spend almost all of our time this morning, um, provoke to love. We are to consider how we as a church can provoke one another to love, to love. And so with that being said, we all know that the word love means almost nothing in our culture today. Uh, it normally is minimized to a, a, a gushy feeling that is here at one moment and then passes as soon as the infatuation is over and we move on to the next thing. But scripture doesn't allow us to have a, a washed out version, a watered down version of love. It gives us a very specific definition of love in a passage that is familiar to many. And that's where we're going to look at this today. Uh, we're going to look at the different ways in which we are to consider spurring one another on to love. And the first way, the way that love is defined is through patience. It's defined through patience, meaning long-suffering, meaning long-tempered. This is the ability as a person to be inconvenienced by other people, being willing to even suffer hardship or be willing to be taken advantage of maybe over and over again without getting angry, without getting bitter. Its primary concern is for the welfare of others rather than the welfare of self. And I'll be asking this question with almost every one of these. It's more, I'll tell you, than you can process um, while you're sitting here. So hopefully this is just uh, morsels for the rest of your week. But patience. The second here, we are to consider to spur one another up to be kind. This is to be useful. This is to be gracious to one another. Um, we're to consider and challenge each other to be generous. We're to challenge each other to serve. We're to challenge each other to work to the best of others, to meet others' needs. Even to meet the needs of our enemies. We're supposed to call ourselves to and raise the bar in our kindness. How's your kindness? Do you provoke when you think about it? Do you provoke kindness in the hearts of other people? Do you provoke them to kindness or do we provoke to selfishness? Thirdly, love does not envy. Uh, love does not envy. Now, envy can take on a couple different forms, jealousy and covetousness. So um, the first part there, jealous, I want what somebody else has. I want their vehicle. I want their home. I want the relationships that they have. Uh, I want their job. I want the opportunity. I want as much money or I want as much hair. These are the kinds of things that you can have. This is jealousy. This is jealousy. Um, now, covetousness is I, I wish they didn't have what they have. I wish that they didn't have the things that they have. This is basically desiring evil for somebody else. Both kind of fall under the umbrella of not envying. So love does the opposite. Love is glad for others. And we're to challenge one another to be glad for other people. 
in our lives, other people in the church, glad for their successes and their talent and their beauty and their grade point average and their, their job, their popularity, whatever blessing is in their lives, we're to be glad for them. That's what love does. So question, do you provoke envy in others or do you provoke contentment in others? Fourthly, love does not brag. That's to talk conceitedly. So it doesn't brag. Basically, love doesn't, doesn't parade around and announce all of its accomplishments. So jealousy is wanting what someone else has, but bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. It's trying to make them jealous of the things that we have, to make them discontent with what we have. When we brag, we're basically making people jealous or we're making them discontent. It, it lifts us up or tears us down or tears them down. And, and so we're called to consider, to stir one another up, to love, which is to not allow one another to, to, to always speak about ourselves, especially in an arrogant kind of way, which leads to number five, love's not arrogant. It isn't arrogant. It's not inflated. It's not proud. This type of person thinks that they're better than everybody else. They're proud of their talents. They're proud of their, their popularity. It's funny. When people talk to me throughout the course of the week, they have to know that they're preparing sermon illustrations for me. But I had someone this week, as I'm in a conversation with them, and they said um, they were in a... In a um, well, let's just say they were in a relationship where someone was, was, was poking at them, and they, they said that that person told them that they were always thinking that they were better than everybody else. And this guy told me, he goes, when they said that, I realized I do think I'm better than everybody else. And that's not good. It took someone to put words to it for him to actually see it, and it kind of broke him once he saw it, and uh, now he's trying to figure out how to not be so arrogant. And that's not an easy job to do, but he's working on it. But basically the principle here is, you know, we have no right to be arrogant. Because from our, our, our Jesus point of view, from our, from our faith, we know that every single good and perfect thing within our lives is a gift from him. So when we're arrogant, we're just basically putting our hand to the face of God and saying, look at what I've done. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ are to point this out for one another, to stir one another up not to be arrogant. And then this one as well, to not be rude. To not be rude. Do not act unbecomingly, as some of your, your translations say. Um, basically, to be rude just simply doesn't care about what others think. Um, they don't care enough to act politely. I think this is very timely. We're going into the holiday season with family around, and it seems like if there's any time we get to have the license to be rude, it's when family's around. And um, that's just not Christ-like in any kind of way. Uh, some people will say, well, God has just made me blunt. No, God hasn't made you blunt, and that's not being blunt. That's just being a jerk. And he hasn't made you that way. He hasn't made you that way. Just look at the rest of the definition here of love. I, I was checking the for a phone number for the post office this week. And as I went on there and I looked on Google, there was Google reviews and it was only like one and a half stars. And so I just thought, well, what is this all about? So I started looking at the comments. I looked at all, at all these different comments and I don't know, I personally like our, our, um, our post office and I think they do a good job. It's not an easy job, but anyway, um, no one else seemed to think that. And one of the comments, um, 
the person said, these people are horrible. They don't know what it takes to deliver a package. I wish they knew how to do their job. That's pretty rude. But what really makes that bad is her handle, her name, was Bible Girl. That was her name. And it's just, you get it, it's sickening because of how that makes our Jesus look to the world. It's a sickening thing. When we act rudely, it, it stinks, and it goes a lot of different places. So, um, with you, do you provoke others to act rudely, or do you provoke others to be considerate, to be kind? Seventhly, love does not insist on its own way. This is probably the, the, the foundational of all of the negative attributes of what love is not. Love does not insist on its own way. We just can think of the Christian story. This goes all the way back to the beginning. This is what got Adam and Eve and the, the trouble that they did and was their original sin is they, they thought that they could do it their way, not do it God's way. And this caused all kinds of problems. We had our marriage seminar this is last Friday night. And our theme verse for, for that this month was Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit, but rather in humility consider others better than yourself. Because love doesn't insist on its own way. It does not. So question, do you encourage others to be self-centered or others-centered? Okay, I'm just going to pause for a moment. We're halfway through our list. And um, I have taken this text before and spent four months working through what we're covering in a half an hour. And, uh, and so with that, I do not want to miss the opportunity to allow you to process. And so I'm just going to, we'll just pause for a minute. And you've got these in your notes. Take these first seven, and I'm guessing maybe one or two has popped out to you by now that maybe you could be a little bit more considering of. And I'll give you a moment just to think upon those things. You may need to ask for forgiveness from our Father, or you may need to, after the service, ask forgiveness from somebody else. So I'll be back in just a moment. Okay. Love is. Number eight. Love is not irritable. Meaning it, it does not get aroused to anger. When things are done against us or not to our liking or we haven't had our morning coffee or whatever the case might be, we don't take personal offense to things so easy. We live in a world today that is so thin-skinned. People get so upset so quickly about so little. People are so easily offended. 
Uh, that's just not what love does. Love is not easily offended. Love is not easily aroused to anger, quick to get angry. And then what happens? Then we try to justify the anger. We try to demand that we're right. And then we try to retaliate, or, or other people do. Love's not irritable. Love's not irritable. So do you stir up anger in others, or do you stir up hearts that seek peaceful and unifying conclusions? Ninthly, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This is a, this is a um, bookkeeping term, logizgomai, I think is how it's said, and it means to calculate on a spreadsheet. This is that you would take all of the wrongs that anyone's ever done to you and you make this list mentally of those things and you, you, you harbor them and you bring them in close and um, at the first sign or the first thought of an offense that comes up or the first time you haven't had a good night's sleep, you pull out this list and you can rec record and, and, and list out all of the ways this person or this church or whatever the case might be has wronged you. I just want to say on a side, it bugs me. It bugs me when people have bad experiences in church and they become so thin-skinned about it it takes them a long time to come to church again, and then they come to church, and at the first sign of what they perceive as any kind of a problem, they throw that perception and that past hurt on the people that they're loving right then and there. They take that wrong suffered and they dump it on their current context. That bugs me. It bugs me. Someone asked me if I was going to do a rabbit trail. There's my rabbit trail this morning. So love, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a list of these things so that they can continue to use it against them. But instead, what it does is it releases forgiveness. It lets go of any bitterness. Tenthly, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in un unrighteousness. This is the, you know, the way that it kind of commonly happens, very socially acceptable, is we would say, um, there, was a, there was a really bad scene in this movie, but you know, beyond that, everything else was great. Or just a little bit of you know, inappropriateness, but you know what, the rest of the movie was great. Or I think a more horrific way that takes place in our world today is through social media and looking on and just seeing people bomb one another with, with, with uh, wrongdoing. And um, we kind of just can let that kind of go on or maybe even engage in it ourselves with, with those kind of things. But love doesn't rejoice in those kind of things. Love doesn't engage with wrongdoing, doesn't find any way to, to enjoy that. So do we encourage people? Do we encourage people to, to uh, enjoy wrong things or do we encourage people to put those things aside and 11thly rejoice with and within the truth? So this is ultimately about God's truth. I was going to show a clip that came from um, a professional football player last week who was asked by a reporter about him getting benched as the quarterback. This is um, Nick Foles from the Jaguars. And, and in two minutes, Nick Foles, he just, as soon as the, the reporter asked, and he goes, no, I know you're a man of faith. 
does this really rock your world when this happens? And boy, he took two minutes and so lovingly and perfectly stood on truth and laid it out to the entire world. It's funny how quickly they shut him off once he started to share Jesus with, with the whole world. Boy, he proclaimed the gospel well because he rejoices in the truth. And he's like, I've got an opportunity to proclaim truth. I'm going to take it. And he did on a, on a global scale. It was just awesome. And so when we stay quiet, when, the, when there's an opportunity for the truth to proclaim or we allow others to stay quiet when truth needs to be put forth, that's a problem. That's not love. When we don't say a truthful thing in a loving way to someone, that's not rejoicing in the truth. That's hiding from the truth. That's hiding behind fear and insecurity. Love, number twelfthly, I just want to keep doing the lees. Twelfthly, love, it bears all things. It bears all things. The, the word here is stego, meaning to, to cover or to support or to protect. You don't get to see this very often, but this is what your elders do for you as a church. This is their job, to, to, to bear burdens for the body, and they do it so well. They do it well. They come and they take, they take arrows they, they, as, as, as a, a call to serve you. Believe me, the elders in our church aren't there because they're seeking a position or a title. They're there because they know what love is. None of them would say they're perfect. Actually, all of them don't feel like they're qualified. They all are qualified to be elders. But this is what they do. They bear burdens for our body, for our church. I love that about them. But this is what we're called to do too. We're, we're to consider spurring one another to bear all things for one another, which basically just means that we look to protect from exposure. We look to protect from ridicule or from harm. And specifically, this happens in parenting, doesn't it? When our parents, when our, when our kids, as parents, when they, when they mess up, when they sin, we want to protect them from, from the, the vulnerability that they feel and the words that can come from other people to kind of kick them when they're down. We don't want to justify or enable their sin by any stretch, but we want to protect their hearts as their parents. And that's what we are to do for one another. That's what love does. When we are to consider stirring one another on, we are, we are considering stirring one another on to protect one another. So this is why you would stop gossip in its tracks. You would want to protect others from any arrows. That's what you want to do. If love bears all things. Thirteenthly, love believes all things. These last few kind of just go in tandem. Love believes all things. Uh, this, is, this is awesome. Uh, this last week, Mike Allen, who, who, who came, Mike and Alyssa, if you don't know them, you should. They're awesome. Um, they're adding a fourth pretty soon, right? Dominic and then, yeah, just a few more months. Um, Mike came and shared his testimony with the youth group this, this past week. And he shared uh, about how there was a season of his life after he came to know the Lord, he made some really, really bad choices. Those choices prevented him from getting, getting the college scholarships that, that were going to be pretty much handed to him full ride. And, and um, with that, it created, created to him a great deal of pain and hurt. And now, many, many years later, he looks back and, and he, he brought up and he quoted this verse, Philippians 1.6, you know, he who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of completion. Because it believes all things. We know that what God starts, God will, will finish. And so with this, what this means, practically, we, we are not 
cynical or we don't encourage suspicious suspicion in one another or cynicism in one another uh, conspiracy theories those kinds of things um, because it, it believes in, in the best outcome for others that's what that what it means believes all things that it believes in that regardless of the way things may look today it believes in the best of what might be coming tomorrow knowing that God is loving and God is in control if there's doubt about a person doubt about their, their guilt, doubt about anything in their lives, then the one who loves by believing all things will, will, will uh, trust. They'll opt out of opportunities to look for the worst and they'll instead look for the most favorable option for them. And so I ask you do, you, do you encourage a spirit of mutual trust or a spirit of suspicion? Fourteenthly, love hopes all things it hopes all things it hopes very similar to the last one it hopes for the best outcome for others so we stir one another on we poke and we prod and we motivate and we help and we encourage one another forward in such a way um, that 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 shows that we want to see the best outcome moving forward that's our goal in those things we have hope so this could be someone struggling with with a, a child and their, their struggling behavior. This can be struggling with the fact that someone has an unbelieving family member. Uh, this can be with someone who has someone in their life who's fallen into sin. It can be all kinds of different things, but it hopes for the best outcome because that's what love does. It, it, it seeks faith. Uh, it hopes for growth. It hopes for salvation. It hopes for restoration. Because what love does, love refuses to take failure as a final verdict. That's what love does. It refuses to take failure as a final verdict. And as long as there's life, love does not ever lose hope. If there is life, love does not ever lose hope. Love hopes all things. Fifteenthly, love endures. Love endures. Love endures. Love sticks it out. Love bears what otherwise would be unbearable and it believes in things that would otherwise be unbelievable and it hopes in things that would be hopeless and it, it endures, it perseveres when things would normally be walked away from. Too easy in too many different ways. We talked about it at the marriage seminar how easy it is to not endure through the difficulties in, in, a, in a relationship like that. But the reality is when you endure through the difficulties, as James tells us, that is the, the opportunity to be spurred on to understand and to continue and to last long in the faith. That's when things get good in life is when we persevere through the difficult stuff. That's why perseverance is so important and that's why love endures all things doesn't enable, it's not, that, not saying that, but it does endure. It keeps on hoping, believing, bearing through that process. So, so do you encourage others to persevere or do you encourage others to give up? I'm not going to give the um, opportunity that I gave earlier to, to meditate on these last few that we just covered, but you have a week to do that. Um, you hopefully have growth groups to engage with that but love does these things. Uh, that's a little bit more comprehensive of a definition of love than we get from culture. God kind of love is full. 
It's real, and it's what the world needs, and it's what the people in our life need from us. It, they need us to poke them towards love, being Jesus-like to those in our world, not gravitating to the opposite direction, which it comes much easier uh, for us. But that's why we need one another, to poke one another in the correct and the right direction. So we are to consider stirring one another up, provoking and motivating them to love and to action. Provoke them to love and to action. And consider this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, good deeds, to action. There are so many different examples from Scripture that we could use, Jesus' examples that we could use. I'm just going to point out one of those examples here. This should be number three, not number two. I want to read from Matthew chapter 14. If you have notes, you have it on your notes page. I'll stop when we come to that point. It says this. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him, and they said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. This is where I want to focus. But Jesus said, Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Well, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, well, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said, blessings. Then he broke the bread then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, and they all were satisfied. And then they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. We can kind of read over in this just looking at the miracle that just took place and how awesome that miracle is. But what we see here is that Jesus being Jesus, he didn't need the 12 disciples. He could have picked anybody randomly to pull the fish together and to distribute it. But he did it for them because he wanted to involve them. He knows what's going to be happening to him, and so he needs to get them involved. He needs to provoke them to engage to good deeds. He needs them to be able to recognize the needs around them and to respond to those opportunities and not to make excuses like they were kind of doing there. Um, there's no market here, so can you just kind of send them home and then we'll, we'll reconvene tomorrow because we're all tired. We've been running from people all day and they keep finding us wherever we go. But he is teaching them how to exercise their faith. And by that, when he's gone, these, these men would go and they would be provokers of others, some better than, than others for sure. Needless to say, we all need to be provoked. We need to be provoked and we need to do the provoking. If you're like me, the danger comes in. Instead of provoking people to do stuff, I kind of just take the position, I'd just rather do it myself. It goes quicker and it gets done a lot better, if that's not arrogant, right? <laughs> that's kind of what I think, though. I'll just do it myself. 
problem with that is that we now have elevated the it above the them or above the person. We've taken, the, we've taken a task and we've given task more valuable than, than a heart. And I try to communicate this to our, our ministry leaders that, you know, you got events and we have events that we put on. And you know what? The events, they're going to turn out awesome. They just always do. But it's not about the event. It's not about what you're doing. It's not even about a, a Sunday morning worship service and how well it comes off. What it is about is the people. When we, we get so caught up in the event, we can miss the people. But I think Jesus calls us to the people, not to the event that we're trying to lead. So we have to, in some senses, we have to lower our standard of quality maybe on a, an end product and elevate our attention to people's hearts and loving people. That, that's, that's what we're called to do. Not look at, and, and this goes so true in so many different ways and so many different relationships that we have with, with again, we, we talked about this at the marriage conference, with spouses, with children, and with one another because we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. But if we're, if we're focused on other things beyond Seahawks game, those kinds of things, then we miss out the more important, on the more important things. As I, as I go through this list, as, as the Lord provokes me throughout this last week, I just realized this is just the kind of person I want to be. I want to be a loving person that, that knows how to provoke. I, get, I think I've been doing that a little bit today. <laughs> it feels like provoking. But this isn't my job. This is our job. This is what we do as a family. And we do it with the motivation of love. We don't do it with the motivation of, of harm. We do it to balance love and good, de or love and truth in people's lives. And we need to do this as a church. It's important. So just some, some closing points here. How do we provoke one another? This is just a few. Um, pray for one another. Pray for them. You want to provoke someone? Um, we talked about this with the Goliath message. Um, if you really want to provoke someone, you, you give them over to God. You let God do his work. And you do your work, which is to be on your knees for them. We provoke others to good works by teaching them about Jesus, um, looking for opportunities to see Jesus all over the place, not just on Sunday mornings, but, but in our everyday life, in our everyday tasks, because he's the ultimate servant. And as we look to him, we get to see opportunities and examples. So we point people to Jesus. We model it for him, obviously. We have to be the kinds of people that are, that are acting out our, our love for one another. So we model it for them. Um, and then as we're modeling it to them, then we invite them. We invite them to do it with us. That's what we do. Just a few things I wanted to um, close with today. There's a number of different ways, very practically, you can, if you're like, I don't know how to engage with people in such a way that I can apply this message, so I, I know how to poke and prod, there are a number of different ways that you get to do this. I would think just naturally, and I say it all the time because I think it's very important and I think it's what scripture calls us to do. Um, my growth group does this for me, and I think and hope I do it for them. It's, this is a place for poking to take place. We're just stirring on one another's to love and good deeds. Because there's, it's in the context of, of committed loving relationships. So as relationships develop, we get an opportunity to, to consider provoking one another to love and good deeds. So that's one way. 
Um, we're kind of coming to the end of our session now, but we'll be starting up again soon. Um, another thing is, and um, sadly, probably providentially, I, I asked all of our ministry leaders early this week, could you just send me what are the needs in your ministry? And um, I'll highlight them at this point in time. But um, first off, I did print those out, but I left them all in the office. Again, providentially, so I'm not going to mention all of those. Uh, but what I can say is that there's great needs within our body for people to engage in different ways. Um, through children's ministry, women's ministry, hospitality, uh, youth ministry. Man, I know I'm going to miss them if I, say, if I forget to say them. You know, missions, we love to have some, some younger blood that are passionate about missions in our missions team. There's all these different ways, and I could say all of them. I'm not going to. What I am going to do is, um, after the service, our ministry, ministry leaders are going to be in the foyer, and um, if you would like to find a position to where you can, you can practice provoking, they're going to be there, and they would love to include you in what God's doing in their area of ministry. There's a board between the bathrooms that's got everybody's face on it, so you can, you can do that like matchup game that we play with our kids. Look at the wall, then look for the face. So, um, but the, 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 real, the real thing here is that we would engage, that we would consider and we would provoke and we would stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's a great opportunity that we have, that we get to go to one another and we get a voice in one another's life and we get to do it in a loving, a loving Jesus kind of way. So with that, um, would you stand as I close in prayer? Uh, the worship team can come on up.